You don't need to applaud. As long as you got the message, that's the main thing. So we've got two readings this morning where, where our text is from Hebrews 11, but I want to read from Genesis chapter 4 and verse 1. Let's hear the Word of God. Now Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. His desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And in Hebrews chapter 11, Verse 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through faith, he, though he died, he still speaks. Almighty God, we pray that through your word, Abel might speak as your word to our hearts this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I went down to the Bible school this morning. I asked the children the question, who were the first two babies in, in the world? And instantly, hands went up, and the answer, the right answer was given, of course, Cain and Abel. Everybody has heard of Cain and Abel, even children in our Bible school, remarkably. And uh, Everybody knows that Cain and Abel is the story of the first fratricide in history. In fact, Cain and Abel have become the poster boys for sibling rivalry and familial dysfunction, and in doing so, have become a classic study of how to miss the wood for the trees. The writer to the Hebrews gives us this, a snapshot of their story 
and provides us with the definitive interpretation of what their story is all about. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. You see, what the author is doing is he's now beginning in earnest to show what he meant back in verse 2 of Hebrews 11 when he said that people of old, that is the ancients, the people of God, our forefathers, received their commendation by faith. God took note of their faith and commended them because they lived and believed by faith. So now this is the number one in the list of this great, these, this great categorization of these heroes of faith. What I want to look at this morning is to look at these two boys. I want to ask what their story presumes, what their story provides, and what their story preaches. First of all, what their story presumes. And to begin with, it presumes that the New Testament writers, and which includes Jesus, take Old Testament history and theology very seriously as the very Word of God. One of the great problems in biblical studies and seminaries and in universities today is that many of those who teach those courses don't take the Old Testament as seriously as Jesus and the apostles did. And the result of that has been a superabundance of error. The writer to the Hebrews provides us with a contrary example of how Christian people, Christian scholars, and Christian preachers should understand the Old Testament. According to the narrative we read in Genesis 4, we read how Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain. And again, she bore his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. Two things, fundamentally, though, that are presumed by the story as it's recounted in Hebrews are these. The story, their story, presumes the fall of humanity. The writer to the Hebrews, along with the rest of Scripture, believes that the fall of the human race occurred in real history that happened, and that the Garden of Eden was a place on the map. They also believed that Adam and Eve were our first parents, as well as being the first humans. It's on that premise and on that premise alone that the Bible makes its clearest statement against every form of racism, elitism, and classism. When the Apostle Paul says that God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. So they assume then the story as it is represented, repeated to us there in Genesis, which raises a question. Why is it that the writer to the Hebrews does not start with Adam and Eve? We know that Adam and Eve believed the promise of God about the coming of the Messiah. We know that because when uh, Eve gives birth to her firstborn, firstborn of twins most likely, Cain, she says these words, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. She was reflecting the promise God had made to them. 
outside of Eden when the Lord said that He would take of her male seed. One would come of her male seed who would destroy the devil and all of his works. Her naming of Cain was her grasping the promise of God. So why don't Adam and Eve start the story of faith? And the answer is fairly straightforward. Adam and Eve, you see, did not have to believe the way you and I have to believe. Adam and Eve had met with God. In some form or other, God had come to them regularly. We read that, that when they were in the Garden of Eden, every evening God would turn up and go for a walk for them in the cool of the night, and He would speak to them. He had fellowship with them. Their experience and encounter of God was more by sight than by faith. And even though now they're excluded from that, nonetheless, the memory of, of Eden is still fresh in their minds. Also, they knew what it was like to live in a world that was perfect. But when we come to Cain and Abel, Abel you see, these men are in the same position as we are. It's with these men that the implications of the historical fall begin to play out in history. Here is the very first distinction in the human race. This is the fundamental distinction. All the things that we make distinctive, color, race, background, culture, all of those things are peripheral. They are not fundamental to humanity. But these two men represent the fundamental fault line that runs through the entire human race. Here is the dis distinction between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Those who by their faith and by their lives show themselves to be part of the promise of God for the salvation of the world, and those who by their disbelief and their example demonstrate that they are of their father the devil, who is the father of lies and is a murderer from the beginning. You belong to one or other of these two humanities this morning. Even in this room, you belong to one another. There are no other options. And Abel is presented as a believer, and Cain is presented as, in the language of one of the early church fathers, Tertullian, as the patriarch, the father of unbelievers. That's why in the New Testament, in the book of Jude, Jude 11, it says that the bulk of humanity has gone on the way of Cain. And this is the earliest instance in history of the enmity and hostility that exists between these two lines of descent from our first parents. This is the first manifestation of the spite and malice felt by the world against the children of God. This is the first instance of that bloodlust that led to the crucifixion of the Messiah, of that bloodlust that led to the martyrdom of Christians that continues to this day. Cain and Abel were born into a world that had already fallen. The sinless happiness, the bounteous supply, the unspoiled intimacy of relationship with God that were in Eden are now a thing of the past. Their parents had fallen, disobeyed, rebelled. 
Their mother had been deceived. Their father had sinned and rebelled with his eyes open. Cain and Abel are, as someone said, the children of the eighth day. The story presumes the fall of humanity. The story presumes also the grace of God. There was grace promised to Eve in that first gospel promise. I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring and her singular offspring. He, singular, will crush your head, and you shall injure, bruise his heel. And from that point on, you can see it in, uh, in Eve's reaction to Cain's birth. The mother is thinking, is this the one? Is this the man? Is this the one who will redeem the world and resolve the issue that has been the result of sin? Cain was not a type of Christ, but Abel was a type of Christ. We're told that Abel was a keeper of sheep. He was the first shepherd pointing us to Jesus. The Lord is my shepherd. He who is the chief shepherd of our souls, the good shepherd, the great shepherd of the sheep. He is like Jesus in another way as well. Because although Abel is not mentioned very much in the Bible, wherever Abel is mentioned in the Bible, he is also described as being a righteous person. Jesus talks like that in Matthew 23, the blood of righteous Abel, he speaks. Here in Hebrews 11, he obtained the witness that he was righteous in the sight of God. And that's interesting because when you look at Jesus, how is the Lord Jesus described in the New Testament? He is Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the righteous one who was slain, the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. We see the grace of God at work in the very practice of the sacrificial system here, long before Moses introduced it to Israel. How had they found out about this? Except by divine revelation. How did they know that this is the way you come into a relationship with God? Was it because of the animals that God killed in order to clothe their parents with skins when his parents, their parents were hiding from God, conscious that their sin had come between them and God, making them aware that they were naked and now ashamed. They'd never been ashamed before. That covering covered them so that they were able to stand in the presence of God and became a picture of the Lord Jesus who shed his blood and died for our sins so that we might be clothed in his righteousness and be counted as Abel was, righteous in God's sight. So, what is presumed is the fall of humanity and the grace of God, that in spite of the fall, true religion still survived. And in grace, God had communicated that even for a sinner, there was one way that they could approach Him, be received by Him, and enjoy fellowship with Him. Well, that's what their story presumes. What does their story provide? Their story provides us with a study on how not to worship. These two men posit a con contrast. 
Worship is the general theme, and the way to worship is the particular focus of the story. In his account of the life of faith, the author has an eye to the present realities of life post-fall, the fallen condition of humanity. And so he begins the story. Here are two men, members of a fallen race, and they are coming to worship. Here is the first activity that we have described in any detail in the whole of human history. Why is that? It is because these men had been taught by their parents that it is of the essay and the Benny essay of being human. That is, it is of the essence. It belongs to the proper nature of humans, and it belongs to the happiness of humans to worship God. That worship is part of what it means to be made in the image of God. So that when we gather together as human beings as we are this morning to worship God, we are, we are exercising part of what it means to be human that we don't exercise anywhere else in the world, any other time of the day or week or month or year. This is where we become the most fully human. There's a dimension of reality that we have in this room together as God's church that we do not encounter anywhere else anywhere else, under any other circumstances, in the entirety of the rest of our lives. In fact, God says of humanity, whom I have created for my glory. And all through the Scripture and through the experience of the church, human beings reach their highest possible level of personality and fulfillment when they are worshiping God Yes, all of life is a theater in which I serve God by serving my neighbor and serving my brother and sister and by serving the world. But when I gather for worship with God's covenant people, I come to serve God for God's sake. I come to bring my mind to bear on what God is saying and push away all the other voices that are claiming my attention. So what this story provides then is a story of worship and how not to worship. You think about what these two men had similar. They, what was similar about these two men, Cain and Abel? You read the story, both of these men came to worship. It was part and parcel of their life. They, they'd been brought up to do this. And so when the, the time was right, at the end of the days, whatever period that was, they came to worship God. Now you might ask the question, where would they have worshipped? There were no churches. There wouldn't be churches for millennia after this. There wasn't even a tabernacle or a temple. But there was obviously a place to worship. Now let's remind ourselves of the context. And maybe we can come up with a hypothesis that you will agree with me. Since I'm the only one talking, you will either have to agree or disagree. So, but we can pretend that we're having this discussion. Uh, and think about the context. Where are they? Well, they're just outside the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve didn't go too far away from that gate back into the garden. You can be sure of that. They tried to live outside the gate east of Eden, as close to Eden as they could. They'd been banished, but Eden for them represented the Holy of Holies. It represented the place of the divine presence. 
In fact, later on under the law of Moses, the language that's used of Eden when it says that the Lord God walked in the garden is precisely the same language that God uses when He's talking to Israel about their tabernacle experience. And He says about their tabernacle experience, the worship experience of Israel, I walked with you throughout your journey, throughout that whole period, I walked with you. Same word. And when it says of the Garden of Eden that Adam and Eve worked it and guarded it, that same language is used of the priesthood under the regime of the tabernacle who were responsible for working and keeping the worship of God there in the tabernacle. And if we try to see what's going on in the story of Eden, here's what's going on. Eden was the holy of holies. Adam and Eve were the first priests. Their great mission was to produce image bearers, to extend the boundaries of the holy of holies until it filled the whole earth with the glory of God. But that was never realized. That never was fulfilled. And after they were banished from the garden, the cherubim guarded the way. You know, when you get to the tabernacle, they had all kinds of artistic drawings and representations of the cherubim to remind them that they were banished from the Holy of Holies and could not go in. When they got to the temple, when they built the temple, they built it with all kinds of things that they fashioned in various ways to represent the cherubim guarding the way into the Holy of Holies. The cherubim, unlike the seraphim, the seraphim are another rank of angel, and they have, a, they have a very intimate job. They're in the Holy of Holies. They're singing the praise of God, doing the will of God inside the Holy of Holies, but the cherubim are outside guarding the way as they did outside the gates of Eden. And so, we can imagine that that is precisely where they went to offer their sacrifice. Just as later in the tabernacle and the temple, the altar was outside the Holy of Holies. They would have gone there, offered their sacrifice, and used that as a way of drawing near to God. Both came, both came with the purpose of worship, both came with an offering to bring. They knew they could not go empty-handed to God. They brought their offering because God had offered them grace on equal terms. There wasn't favoritism shown to one and not the other. Both came at the invitation of God, and both were able to come to offer their offering to Him. Well, that's what's similar. What is dissimilar about these two men? I think we can say these two things. Cain worshipped on the basis of reason. If you read the story very carefully, he was a farmer. He was a tiller of the ground. That was his occupation. That's a good job to have. There's nothing wrong with that occupation or that job. But telling you that information is with a view to you understanding that in his mind it stood to reason that if we were to bring something to God, it should be the best of what He had worked at 
the best of what he had grown. And so what he's doing is he is reasoning and then he is acting in accordance with his own reason and his own conscience. He acts like King Saul. Later on in the Bible, King Saul uh, did not take God's Word literally and thought he could add to God's Word. You see, when he modified the worship of God, Cain began to offer to God what we call will worship. That is, my own will. Will worship. Whenever we subtract from or add to the elements of worship as they've been prescribed by God, we engage in will worship. It seems that Cain considered God to be creator and preserver and offered him the fruits of the ground as a, an acknowledgement that everything that was made had come from God the creator. But is that enough? Is it enough for us to work out how we should worship God in our own terms? I'll return to Abel. Abel worshiped on the basis of revelation. How do I know that? It says Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, God bearing witness in respect of his gifts. John Owen says, the faith of Abel was fixed on God, not only as creator, but as redeemer, as him who in infinite wisdom and grace had appointed a way of salvation, a way of redemption, by way of sacrifice and of atonement that was intimated in that first promise. So what did Abel do? Abel brought a lamb. A lamb who pointed to the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. He brought the firstborn of his flock. The firstborn that pointed to he who is eternally begotten by the Father. The firstborn before and over all creation. The Redeemer. The Lord Jesus Christ pointed to him. Here in this first public description of worship right at the very beginning of human history. He offers the, a lamb, and the book of Revelation will say about this, the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. Right from the very beginning of the human story, the Lamb of God was slain in types and figures pointing forward to the final sacrifice of the Lamb of God, for your sin and mine. Christ is also the firstborn. Psalm 89, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Underlining his eternity, underlining his excellency, making him the only sacrifice that counts. Here's another thing. What was the curse that God spoke on the day that they were excluded from Eden. The wages of sin is death. As Paul says right into the Romans, death reigned from Adam to Christ. It had total control. 
up until the resurrection of Jesus, death was in control. It was therefore fitting, you see, therefore that a sacrifice took on that curse. Abel's bringing an animal, you see, was acknowledging death. It was acknowledging this is the curse of God against sin. Now, when Abel came, he took something that God had created on day three, the plants of the ground. When Abel came, he took something that had been created the same day as man was created. The animals and man, when they were first created, were meant to have some kind of social harmony together. The animals found their identity. Man named them. There was relationship. In the new creation, in the new heavens and the new earth, that relationship will be mended, sorted. We will be reconnected with all the other creatures that God has made. In the moment, in this moment, as a result of the fall, there is hostility between us. And we're even given permission after the flood to slay them and use them for food. But that is an unusual thing. It's not the way it was in the beginning. Nor is it the way it's going to be in the new heavens and the new earth. The wages of sin is death. And Abel brought his animal because he recognized that only a creature like this, he understood why these creatures had to die because of their worth to men at that stage in history. Because you see, as Thomas Manton puts it, Guilt cannot approach majesty, wrapped with wrath and power, without a mediator. What the New Testament says is, Abel believed God. He believed the promise of God. He believed the revelation that God had given. He understood that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. He hadn't heard that verse, but he understood the principle. He understood that the sin problem had to be taken seriously. Cain did not take it seriously. He didn't see that sin leads to death. That means you have to take one of these animals and you have to kill it with your bare hands. That would have been a frightening thing for people at this stage in history. And the reason that Cain did not take sin seriously meant that sin came easily to him. And so without blinking an eyelid, when he is furious with his brother, there's no hesitation. He kills him. He wouldn't kill an animal in his place, but he kills his brother because he does not take sin seriously. Well, that's what the story provides, an illustration of two ways of worship. There's God's way and your way. There's the way of revelation and the way of reason. There's doing it my way or doing it His way. Well, then, thirdly and lastly, what does this story preach? It does preach to us. It preaches to us that being under God's approval provokes the hostility of the world. That's why it's in Hebrews chapter 11. Abraham, or Abel rather, was accepted because of the sacrifice and because of his faith. God had an eye to, his, to him and to his sacrifice. His faith 
and his sacrifice. Cain was overlooked because of his lack of faith, which was manifested in the wrong sacrifice. You know, there are many people today who like to worship God in their own terms. I like to think of God as. You throw in the word that's, that's most current at the moment. I like to think of God as being nice, tolerant, a God who uh, accepts everybody and everything. He's not judgmental. Well, you're welcome to that kind of God. You'll find that the real God is considerably different from any of those things. Well, old Cain, he fills in the blanks himself. Listen to what God says to him. Genesis 4, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? You know that, don't you? You've been taught that. But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. It desires to have you. So you must master it. God is giving him a warning there. Here's what the Apostle John says about, about Cain. He says in 1 John chapter 3, Do not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. God saw into Cain's heart. The act of worship per se cannot make up for a heart that is out of tune with God. Words alone, elegant liturgy alone, skillful music alone, fine singing alone does not please God if it doesn't come from a heart that is in tune with God. That's a fundamental principle. Worship can be as exotic and exhilarating as you can imagine, but ultimately rejected of God if the worshiper is out of step. Here are two worshipers here. One is accepted, one is not. And for the first time in history, we see the anger, the hostility, the hatred of the world against believers. We, we don't know how we don't know exactly how Cain knew. We, we do know that God spoke to him because we just recorded some of what God said to him. How did he know that, that his sacrifice wasn't accepted? There are a number of illustrations in the Old Testament, and it's likely one of these uh, are an illustration of what happened. For several times in the Old Testament, the fire of God fell from heaven and consumed the sacrifice. Was that what happened? We can't be sure, but it may very well be the case. Whatever it was, God made it abundantly clear to both these men, your sacrifice is rejected, your sacrifice has been accepted. Cain is furious. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. The bare facts are all you need. When false ideology and false religion meet the real thing, when the random alternative meets the genuine article, when the claim to authenticity and aesthetical beauty is questioned, 
when the fraud is exposed by the Word of God, then all hell breaks loose. Satan and hell filled him with malice and hatred. Those of us who believe God have to be realistic. The world not only disapproves of us, the world hates us. Of course, as long as we don't say exactly what we mean about things, they might stay indifferent. But when the moment comes for us to say what we mean and how that applies, you will see the world hates us. Only this week, a friend of mine put an article up on the Scotsman, one of the major papers in the UK. It was carried by others as well. And he was addressing some moral moves that have been taking place in the United Kingdom. The outcry from the press has been unbelievable. These people, quote, unquote, these people need silenced once and for all. That's the BBC talking about Christians. We have no idea. It all starts here with Cain and Abel. But there's something else that preaches to it. It preaches to us that being under God's approval is a matter of eternal longevity. So Cain's, the Cains of this world, you know, sometimes are far more attractive than the Abels. Cains are confident, you know, macho or whatever the female equivalent is. But they're, they're people who've got it all together. They're making their way in the world. They will walk over anybody and everything in order to get. And there's an attraction to that, I suppose. The Abels? The Abels have more self-doubt. The Abels are more conscious of their own weaknesses and struggles, their failures, and their sins. That's why Abel brought a sacrifice. He was conscious of the holiness of God, conscious of the seriousness of sin, and clinging to the promises of mercy. And God answered him. And through faith, it says, he being dead still speaks. That's what God told Cain. God came to Cain and said to him, the voice of your brother's blood still cries to me from the ground. God sees and knows every act of injustice. God sees and knows and notes every form of abusive behavior. Child abuse, spousal abuse. God sees and knows and notes every hurt inflicted by others on the innocents. God hears the cries of blood taken in schoolyards and abortion clinics, in gas chambers, in concentration camps, in the killing fields, crying out for resolution, crying out for justice, crying out for a setting of things right, with a cry of calamity, dire calamity, and above all, 
crying out for redemption. The blood of God, the blood of the God-man incarnate cries out in answer to that cry that comes from the earth, that cry of, of abused humanity. The blood of the Son of God cries out in answer, justice will be done, justice has been done, there is salvation. There is a way for man to rise to that sublime abode, an offering and a sacrifice, a Holy Spirit's energies, an advocate with God. And when you believe that, you come boldly to God, not with a sacrifice, but pointing to the sacrifice that has been made for you once for all on the cross. You come boldly to God, and you find that you get through the gate into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of the King for all eternity. And God says, His blood speaks. Writer to the Hebrew says, His blood speaks. His blood is spoken in your ears today. Will you hear? Will you believe? Will you say with your lips, Jesus is Lord? Will you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead? If so, then you will be saved. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would break through the resistance of our hearts and that congenital need to press our own reason and place it over above your revelation, that bowing before you, we might find ourselves besides faithful Abel and have your commendation, Lord, on our faith. We pray in Jesus' strong name. Amen.